where intelligent dissonant thought meets melodic euphonious reality i am your musically magnanimous toast nick the saucy one cat source broadcasting to you as always from meth mountain tennessee rucola or is it Ricola? what's that candy d with the yoda Ricola. Ricola. and i also want to introduce my pro cost of lay proficient co-host calling in all the way from charm city maryland you know who i'm talking about my pal odell hey what's up man mr norman mr norman how's it going tonight good good how are you doing Good. We got D in the background there, um, ready to kick my ass because we're doing three shows back to back. Mm-hmm. So maybe I should uh, sleep on the couch tonight for my own safety. Nah. Mm-hmm. Nah, that'd be fine. <laughs> and, I'll you by then. Yeah, I think 2020 I'm going to have to write a new intro or I'm just going to keep doing the intro more and more ridiculous till it's indistinguishable from how we originally did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds good. So we got a lot going on. Let's dig in. D, where can everybody find us online? Um, we got a big Halloween show coming up on here too. So much going on. Just give us all the facts, D. Just the facts. Just the facts. Well, you can find us on musicalosmosis.com as well as pretty much anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. And yes, we're having a giant, giant Halloween episode. Who are we having? We got Mama Creepy with us. We got um jeff smith from the hickoids bonnie mm-hmm. from um death valley girls my god from valley Matt girls, Sabbath. Yeah. katie mckell who just wrote a play well, i mean she didn't just write it it's been at work for years but we actually got cast odell what do you think about that me and d got cast in a play in new york mm-hmm. the circle nice, of eyes nice. by katie mckell who's going to be on our halloween episode yep there you go <laughs> Well, it's crazy how I forced Gump my way into these situations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, if you could just forest Gump yourself into being, oh, I don't know, a millionaire, then then that'd be nice. Just I'm working on it. I just mm-hmm. money's just so. I mean, I want to make mm-hmm. money to sustain myself, but being rich isn't something I aspire to. Exactly. I, make money so that we can have to quit working and do the things we want to do. You're putting a lot of pressure on me. Yep. No. Have you, you ever considered I'm a moron? No, never. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Hey, let's talk some news real quick before we get tonight's guest in here. Um, this Joker thing, I put an article up, or actually not an article, but a post up. Like the left's going insane because they say that it kind of uh, marginalizes and stigmatizes people with mental health issues and it empowers incels mm-hmm. somehow. The Trump people are fucking flipping their lids because they think the Joker is an allegory for Donald Trump and the like rabbit masses that follow him are Trump supporters. And I wasn't even going to bring it up if it didn't have a musical component, but I guess that song, da 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 da, hey, by Gary Glitter. I guess um, 
that that's come under some scrutiny because that's in a major scene in the movie. And now people are getting very upset that that song's in a movie, even though I, I've heard it at a thousand sporting events and movies before. Why is this a big deal, Odell? Are we just looking for stuff to be pissed off about? I think it's it's such a delicate, you know, it's such a difficult situation because with the day and age of so much research and, and, and um, you know, you can go back and find different things now and people are coming out and speaking more freely about things that happened in the past. It's like a lot of, it's, it's really hard. A lot of, a lot of things and artists, things that were in their closet, if you will, that eventually came out, you know, are coming out well after, you know, their songs or, or books or TV shows or whatever you have it, uh, they have, uh, it makes it really difficult because all of a sudden you have to pull all of that stuff off or uh, it's very questionable. Well, you know, this person did this or this person did that. And it's, it's such a tight, uh, a tough, like that tight line to walk. Well, Gary Glitter will. got convicted, I think, in 2012 for, 12, yeah, I think yeah, so. for molesting a 13-year-old. And he got busted with a bunch of kiddie porn. In 2012, yep. the NFL actually banned that song from the Super Bowl. However, the NHL, as of 2019, still uses it. And Gary Glitter still gets um, royalties from the BBC. What I thought was ironic is there's still a um, hockey team that uses that song. Do you know which hockey mm-hmm. team still uses Gary Glitter's song? Which one? The Predators? Nashville Predators. Now, that's just not having any fucking self-awareness. You're gonna make, your hockey team is called the Predators, and you're going to use a song by a known child predator. Yes, I don't know. Yes. Who's making these decisions? As soon as you asked the question, I was like, um, Wait a Nick, minute. <laughs> you have yeah. to remember that that's in Tennessee. That's true. Just saying. Oh, true. But, I mean, you know, it's, either there or Florida. It's going to be one of those. Yeah. <laughs> it could have just as easy been Orlando Predators. Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> but let's talk ethics because everybody's talking about the ethics of using this song. And I guess it's only because Joker is such a high profile movie that's raked in such absorbent amounts of money. Um, right. Is there an ethical component? To using this song, not just using this song, but there's also this big um, kind of fuzzy gray area because he co-wrote this song and he owns the masters to the song. He's sitting in jail getting royalties for this. Should he should any artist when they're arrested and tried convicted of a heinous crime continue? And I know they have son of Sam law, so you can't write a book like how you killed seven prostitutes and make money. But should previous works prior to them getting convicted, should all that money be taken away from them? Should that income flow, revenue flow be taken away from them? I feel that if you're convicted, uh, for example, you know, in this country, if you're convicted of a felony, right, you can't vote, you can't, it's near impossible to get a a decent job. Um, It's really hard. It's just really hard if you have a felony on your record. So, um, I personally think that the proceeds and all that money should go to the families of those kids that you abu- abused. The royalties should go to those kids that you abused. Um, Going how far back? Is there his whole catalog? No, I would, I would, I would, I would go from the. Um, I, I, wow, that's a, that's a that's a good question. I would probably go from the time of the conviction, or when okay, it was so found out in the, co- in the conviction. 
But can he collect monies for selling CDs today of his albums, as long as it's not any new projects? Hmm. I don't know. I, I mean... Because these are really weird ethical lines to have to draw. I mean, the, the, the yeah. moral of the story is he shouldn't be f- f- fucking with 13-year-old girls, and we wouldn't even have to have this conversation. Have to have this conversation. Exactly. Exactly. But and, since um, he put us in this situation, fuck you, Gary Glitter, for making me have this conversation. Yeah. Since he put us <laughs> I mean, in this situation, like, where do you draw these moral lines? Yeah, yeah. And it, it, that's the thing. It's like, it's so, yeah, I mean... Because the effect that he, like you said, you know, thanks, Gary Glitter, for what you did. I mean, you can go through the gamut now. Look at, like, Bill Cosby. Look at all, of, you know, it's like all of these people that had such a, a uh, influence. A good one, too. Or, they you, take the Cosby yeah. show off of TV land, but then that whole cast loses money because Everybody of what Bill Cosby money. did. So how is that yep. fair? Yeah, yeah, true. And see, that's the other. Woo! That's a good, uh, yeah. All right, well, we're not going to have time to untangle this ball of yarn tonight, as Fern would say. So let's get tonight's <laughs> guest in here. All righty, today's guest is a phenomenal creator of musical experimentation. Her songs are thought-provoking and push the boundaries of what we consider correct music. Let's welcome the dynamic Laura Faye Asavad. I hope I'm saying that correctly, otherwise known <laughs> as Arthur Moon. Did I butcher your name too bad? <laughs> Ashavud, <laughs> so close. Ashavud. Yeah. Okay, close enough. There you go. <laughs> hey, so, so much to talk about. Before we jump into the music, I like to ask everybody in these insane times, how are you doing? How are you holding up as an artist, as a creator, in these like fucked up, cre- like chaotic, tumultuous times? Like as we're drawing the end of the year, how are you holding up? <laughs> I'm doing okay. I'm uh, digging my heels into my community and figuring out how to um, uh, move forward uh, while also like helping out the people that that I uh, collaborate with and care for. So we're all just looking out for each other and hoping things will be okay. (laughs) That is a beautiful thing. There you go. Let me kind of ask you this too. Um, When we live in such a kind of political furnace that we live in now, does this make the creative process harder because everybody's so stressed out, pissed off, a little bit unsure what tomorrow might bring? Or does it strengthen your resolve and kind of give you laser focus to create at a level that, you know, kind of pushes your boundaries to create, like they always say, the best punk came during the Reagan era. Does it kind of push your boundaries to just produce your best work because it takes you places because there's so much anxiety that it wouldn't normally take you? Or do you think it kind of hobbles artists because you're everybody's running around like, holy shit, what's going to happen tomorrow with this guy? And I think we know who we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the the, uh, the thing that affects our, our – well, that's not true. There are a number of things that affect musicians' daily lives depending on who they are and what their identity is in this political climate. But for me, uh, the thing that – that affects my daily life is, is anxiety about uh, what's going to happen to, to queer folks in this country. Um, and uh, also anxiety about money and the growing disparity of wealth in this country. So um, true. In particular, true. the lack of those resources does not, um, does not give me extra energy. It just makes the work harder. Uh, but, and I think that's that's probably true for for at least most of the people that I collaborate with. Um, unfortunately, uh, I wish we could just uh, <laughs> work without those resources, but sometimes it's pretty difficult 
Um, uh, and then in terms of like the, the sort of political fire under the ass, uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it, it feels really important to be making work that um, speaks to uh, the communities that are feeling more and more vulnerable in this terrifying time. Um, and it certainly feels like a, like a motivating force. Right. And I think, let me throw this over to Odell. Odell, I think it means more. I mean, me and Odell are in our mid forties. So we were playing like punk music during the nineties and we were writing like these funny little ditties about whatever the issue today was, but there was really nothing at stake like today. Um, So Odell, it's like, it's such a different world. I always say, I don't know how, I don't understand how anybody over like under 30 hasn't gone children into corn on us yet. Because, like, the older generation has <laughs> fucked things up so bad, I would understand. My daughter's 14, and I'm like, I would understand if you're like, God, your generation sucks. Like, yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't you. take it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for, unfortunately, for for myself, I, you know, a lot of these things that are happening now, being that I'm African-American, a lot of these things that are happening now were always happening, for at least for me. I've always seen it and I've always noticed it. Um, it just, unfortunately it took somebody like this to really bring people out of the woodwork that you're like, Oh, uh, I didn't know you were like that. Or I didn't know your feelings on this were like so entrenched with this. Cause you know, we hung out all the time or we did this together or we did, you know, and then all of a sudden I come to hear, certain things or words or feelings that I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, it makes you wonder how you really felt about me as a person. Mm-hmm. So, um, right. It's like before I think the, I, the racism was like accidental and now it's like clear that yeah. it definitely was not accidental at all. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, it, and it, you know, for, for myself and, 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 and you can speak on this too, is that, um, that when I was growing up or, and as I kept growing up, it wasn't like, racism or bigotry or any of that went away. It was just, it was contained. It was, um, it wasn't the thing to do. And, um, when you get somebody, if you give somebody that platform that is going to spread that all of a sudden those feeling, eventually those things are going to come out. The real person's going to eventually come out. And it's, I think it, I think it just surprises so many people that other people feel that way. You know, when, when, when Trump got elected, I think a lot of people are like, well, okay. Yeah, this you know, it'll it'll be a fad and it'll go away and you're and then other people that really had seen and and know what it's like to be um pick bullied or segregated or alienated from things. You're like, "No, this is the person. This is he's telling you what he is. He's telling you what he's about." Mm-hmm. And it happened so fast, but people still to this day are so like, "Well, you know, once he leaves, you know, why don't we just wait it out? Once he leaves, this is going to happen. It's like, no, nah, it's not going to, you know. <laughs> no, it's this out there. is sustainable damage. Right, and sure. also like yeah. waiting it out is a, waiting it out is a profound privilege that you only really have if you're not affected by the racism, exactly, the transphobia, for example. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like if you're a decent person, you're affected by it. It might not affect you directly. As someone who's perceived as just being a white guy, it doesn't – like I'm not worried about anybody knocking on my door or anything like that. But I'm in a rage every fucking day. This stuff has my stomach in a knot because I see injustice after injustice, and it drives me insane. Yeah. No, oh, I know. And uh, and that's the – and it should. You know, it it should. It should. It should. You know, I live in Baltimore City, and it, I, I've 
we you know I've been here since 2004 and the stuff that we see here, it drive it drives you up a wall. It's crazy. Um, it's to the point now where, um, you know, things have to be done by the people and that's where it's going to come from. Cause you can't, I mean, you can't rely on the, you know, the, the city. You can't rely on the police force. You can't rely on politicians outside the city because they've already stereotyped and labeled what Baltimore is. You know, what he said about Baltimore, what Trump said about Baltimore is in like, it's not a surprise coming from him or people that are around. Like, you hear it all the time. It's just, you know, when he said that, people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that. I was like, why would that surprise you? He, it, that does not surprise me. There's people that literally live in Maryland that think Baltimore is trash. So mm-hmm. um, why sh- why should it be surprising that he said it? He, you well, know, I so. think Laura Faye like really put it succinctly when she's like, I'm concentrating on the people. I care about who matters and keeping it local and doing what I can. And I think that that's all you can do these days. But let's kind of shift gears here and talk more about the music. I want to talk about your creative process and what you call um, odd theory or incorrect music. Tell us a little – like I don't feel like anybody comes out the creative gate with these ideas because they're fairly unique and revolutionary. I feel like that this is a process to get you to these kind of creative places. So tell us about that journey to get to where you are today where you're like really kind of pushing the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, well, I started out making folk music. Um acoustic guitar, banjo, that kind of thing. Um, and then slowly... So that's where the banjo comes in. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I slowly no, found just... my way, like, yeah, over to sort of more electronic stuff. First it was like a rock band, and then I was like, cool, I like I like plugging stuff in. And then, and then things just got more and more electronic from there. And, and as that process continued, I also sort of started to become more and more comfortable with, like, having my... Uh, my queer perspective become a part of my writing, at least more explicitly. Obviously, it was always there. Um, And when I started to think about how it was playing into my writing and into the way that I was, you know, thinking about arranging music and thinking about building songs, I realized that it was um, the the queerness existed in in these kinds of um, spaces where I wasn't afraid to um, break the rules and do things wrong. It was sort of like a lesson that I learned through living my life and being who I was. And then, um, that I was able to sort of take into the music and, and, uh, and yeah. And, and so incorrect music is, is sort of a, a way of kind of encapsulating that idea, which is like, you know, breaking the rules, um, is inherently like a, an act of sort of radical queerness. Wow. Wow. So how does, for, so when listening to your, listening to the music that comes from the band, how, how do you take what you do and what you've inputted and, and, and it, I know there's creative input from everybody in the band. How, how does that work with you guys? Cause there's so much going on. Like when you just said folk music, I was like, that's why I hear banjos and, and, and some <laughs> of the songs and like the oddest parts, but it, it fits so well that you know and makes yeah. sense so how does that how does that i guess that the environment of, of you all playing together how does that work how does that all fit together like that it changes from song to song so like um some of the tunes i'll sort of do most of the arrangement myself and then just kind of bring it to the band and have them tweak stuff but a lot of the time i'll bring them sort of like a, a snippet of an idea and 
we'll like just play around with it and and there'll be sort of these moments where we'll be working on it and I'll and I'll like turn to the band and be like I'm bored and then everyone will be like <laughs> oh we want to bored and we'll sort of like figure out how to make it um make it feel more uncomfortable to play and my collaborators are just like these brilliant mostly jazz strained musicians um who mm-hmm. are just like able to hang in whatever way uh whatever way is necessary and um are sort of magically able to to break the rules which is not common for jazz school kids um, right right <laughs> uh, and, yeah and so th- those those songs will sort of pass through the the band meat grinder and then I'll take them home and workshop them on my own for a while and then bring them back and they'll sort of be a, a passing back and forth like that um a lot of the tunes on this record actually I, I I sort of didn't do that way I did a lot of them sort of myself um on an artist residency in uh New Mexico which is a different oh, wow. different experience for me um just kind of like n- being in isolation and writing that way um the tune that has banjo on it on the record which is uh homo normal has like a little banjo solo uh, mm-hmm. I was like experimenting one day and I like pulled a butter knife out and started like playing slide slide on the banjo. That's so incredible, <laughs> man. <laughs> so let me get into your head here, into the creative process, because you're someone who fascinates me. And as somebody who's, you know, in his mid forties, has seen so many things come and go and seen so many different formulas and systems, especially in music. When you're creating this, just in your mind musically, are you purposely trying to challenge perceptions and push the listener out of these little preconceived boxes? It's kind of like this matter of principle or rebellion, or is this just kind of organically and naturally who you are? And you're just naturally pushing against these systems, and this is just the output of it. Or is this a con? Is it organic, or is this a conscious effort to kind of say, "Hey, I'm here to do this"? Honestly, I think it's a little bit of both. I don't have any like real musical training, so um, most of the time I'm just like flying by the seat of my pants and um, and just kind of like doing whatever sounds interesting to me, um, and often the thing that sounds interesting to me is something that kind of like will be pushing the boundaries of what a person would expect from like, you know, a a pop song or like popular music form. Um, uh, And so I like tend to embrace that because um, it feels like it matches up with my sort of ethos. But honestly, I don't think that I could make, I don't think that I could make like correct music if I tried. I think it would still sound kind of like (laughs) weird and wonky no matter what I did. Do you put any kind of controls, self-imposed controls on yourself where you're like, musically, I can't get this far out? Or is it just a process of, I'm going to go where this takes me? Mm. Huh. Uh, honestly, the control is like, do I feel, do I get it? I see it, yeah. an emotion to me. And like, if I feel like I can wrap my head around what, it is what I'm saying, then I feel like it, then I feel like other people should be able to, too. <laughs> Which oh. is probably naive. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't understand? So let me kind of get, tell you the thought I had when I first started going through and listening to your catalog. 
I'm digging in here to the interviews and the music, and I'm like, wow, this really seems like a person that for you, and you can tell me if I'm correct in this, that music is a living, breathing, ever-changing form of energy as opposed to just notes on a piece of paper. Is that kind of fair to say how you view it? Oh, totally. I don't even read music, so I definitely don't. Oh, wow. Really? (laughs) Amen. God bless you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So you're just kind of existing in these musical moments. This isn't something that's really formulated to you. There's there's nothing mathematical about it, I guess. No. I mean, I, I feel like as I've sort of, like, been playing music for many, many years, I've started to, like, grasp, like, sort of intuitively grasp um, some of the like math, formal math ideas behind particularly rhythmic stuff. Um, yeah. But I don't, I don't, um, I don't do that intentionally. I'm not, I'm not like sitting down with theory books and uh, I'm not like counting. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we're going to play some Homo Normal. Is there anything you want to tell us about this song? Kind of give us a lead up to it. Mm. Well, I told you about how the banjo solo on there is something I did with a butter knife when I was like making the demo for the song. Which is awesome. Yeah. I also, a lot of the harmony on that song is like, comes from writing on a piano for the first time, writing on vocoder for the first time. So like, are you serious? My life writing, writing on guitar. Yes. Where so like the the relationship between the notes is like very different from the way that piano where everything's just like, laid out in a line which is amazing so there's a lot of sort of more experimentation with a little bit of more chromatic stuff um on that song which maybe you'll be able to hear coming through particularly in the vocoder all right well let's give it a listen d take it away (laughs) then i woke up and the sun was shining on the house beside the
All righty, we are back. Um, I kind of want to dive in real quick and talk about this. I'm somebody who's always, I just have this intuitive need to kind of break people's personalities down and see what makes them tick. I know you grew up in New York. You grew up in Brooklyn, right? Yep. This is a very vibrant, kind of chaotic and noisy neighborhood. How much of that, like growing up with that soundscape, do you think plays into how you create music and how you experience music? Did the city have a huge impact, say, than if you grew up in like Louisville, Kentucky? Like, did that city have a huge creative impact on you? Yeah. Uh, maybe less to do with like it being literally noisy all the time since I grew up in Park Slope, which is like a relatively quiet neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, but certainly just by virtue of being surrounded by so many different kinds of people making so many different kinds of music and art and um, just being able to uh, sort of absorb all that creative energy and, and be inspired by it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that like the, some of the most chaotic moments in the music have a lot more to do with like the chaos in my, in my, in my brain <laughs> than, than any sort of like city or country or suburb chaos that may exist. But I don't know. I hear you there for sure. Odell. <laughs> yeah. No, I was living in Brooklyn. I know there's it's just so much that goes on there artistically. So what what type of what were you influenced by growing up? Like when I hear you guys, I hear a lot of like like Portishead and um, groups of that nature, just like the way the changes, you know, all of a sudden you're hearing you're you get into a certain flow and then boom, it changes into something totally different and then goes right back or so like um, what influenced you? People have said that about Portishead, but I honestly didn't listen to them at all growing up and only have, like, uh, just started scratching the surface of Portishead. So, very cool, but I, like, cannot speak to that band at all. I don't know anything about them. <laughs> um, but that's, like, I'm definitely flattered. Uh, I, you know, I was listening to all kinds of stuff. I, honestly, I was listening to a lot of, like, bluegrass music, which is a little bit dissonant with what you might imagine a person would listen to in, in New York. But in Brooklyn, New York. Really, was really into bluegrass. Um, particularly my mom, like bluegrass and this like Canadian country singer named um, Hank Snow. She's like obsessed with him. He was great. Okay. Um, <laughs> he wrote like this one song that, that Elvis made famous, which I can't remember the name of it right now. But um, And uh, as I was like, you know, a teenager and a, and a person in my 20s, I uh, was listening to a lot of Radiohead. Uh, there you go. York. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. That in okay, okay. head record, like really kind of changed the way I thought about um, melody and arrangement when it came out. I was in college. Gotcha. Just like yeah. destroyed. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I have to imagine, and maybe I'm way off base here, but as somebody who kind of knows people, I have to imagine because you are so honest and so brave in the way you express yourself creatively, I imagine you have to come from a pretty supportive background. Is that correct? Were your parents pretty supportive? Oh, totally. Yeah. My mom is like the most amazing. She's like my super fan. She comes to a lot of my shows and whenever we play in the city and is like just the most supportive person you could possibly. Oh, that's awesome. Support. That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Adele, one of these days I'm going to have to, like, write a book about this. I'm always so interested. You have the people like Woody Harrelson who just came up in this just totally horrible environment, and that kind of pushed him to tap places he wouldn't normally tap to create. And then you have the support. I feel like the supportive people have a lot coming out of the gate. People have supportive environments where they can get to work a lot quicker 
And then somebody mm-hmm. who comes just from fucking chaos, it just takes them so much longer to get there. But then when they put this stuff out, it's just so much more intense. And one of these days, mm-hmm. I'm just going to have to collect all this information and see kind of which path. I don't even want to say better because, you know, there is no better. But, like, kind right. of just compare those two paths because it's really interesting to me that when you talk – we've talked – oh, God, dude. I think I've talked to over 300 people over the years on these podcasts. And they just come from – there's just no formula. Creative people come no, from so many no. different backgrounds that yep. you just can't nail down any kind of, like, recipe for success when it comes from, like, having a creative background. So true. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think – I think it's just a. Uh, I think it's one of those things that. What are you going to do with it? Are you are you going to, you know, are you are you? It it still comes from you at the end of the day. So, um, are you going to be the one that's like, nah, I'm going to settle and do something that I know is not not. I'm not tapping into my creative background, or is it I'm going to jump headfirst into it and just work my way through it? Um, some people jump headfirst into it and then they get out halfway through and then they regret it later on some people stay in it you know so yeah i think there's so many avenues that that can be explored there yeah it's like a crazy rubik's cube of just uh, so Mm -hmm. many different combinations to get you there all right let's finish up with this and this is kind of a little bit of a sticking point arthur moon how do you yourself perceive it is arthur moon your stage name and you're accompanied by a band is it the name of the band is it just one solid entity or is it up to the listener to decide what it is I like to think that uh, it's all of the above. Uh, I'm trying to (laughs) encourage myself and the people around me to be comfortable with gray areas. Um, So, yes, Arthur Moon is definitely me. Um, Arthur Moon is also who I am on stage, and it's also the name of this, like, broader collaborative project that um, a couple different people are part of. So, yeah. Are you kind of a person that competes with yourself as far as, okay, the next project has to be like even more inclusive of who I am. I have to kind of push the boundaries more. Are you a more, hey, I'm going to go into the studio or I'm going to go to create these songs and let them take me where they take them? Like the process of it, do you have an overall like plan of where you want this to go or are you just kind of living in the moment and letting it take you where it will? I definitely um – have like broader plans like i'm gonna make the best record ever every time i sit down to <laughs> make a record That's um, awesome. but i'm never there you like, go. but i'm never like uh you know i i very rarely am like here's the concept of this record now let me execute it because i feel like that can be incredibly creatively limiting often what happens is i'll sort of like have a vague sense of the ideas that i'm interested in and i'll explore them for a while and then eventually sort of a, a broader set of of themes will emerge which is definitely what happened on the the first full length that we just put out um and which is currently just starting to happen on the new stuff i'm writing so nice i continue to be vaguely coherent yeah (laughs) so let's kind of actually end with this what advice do you have moving forward to anybody coming up today that wants to be creative because there's so much competition and so much white noise on the internet it's just so hard to break through. Is it just all about honesty and just giving completely your true self? Or is there some kind of logistical marketing formula to all of this to break through? <laughs> oh, man. 
Uh, it seems like it changed, like in terms of the logistical stuff, it seems like it changes every day. And honestly, I feel like most of the time I'm just like trying to get into this big house and all the doors and windows are locked and, and I'm trying to break in somehow. Um, so I don't know if I have an answer to like logistically how to be successful as a musician. Cause I'm, I'm still working on that. Um, but, uh, in terms of like being creatively fulfilled, I think, uh, I mean, I, my advice would be to, um, my advice would be to, um, let your mistakes guide you and to actually embrace the places where you are raw and rough around the edges and let those be the thing that sort of, um, that sort of, uh, communicate your identity and not, not the polished bits. Wow. That's Let's end there before we screw it up. Let's end right there. That's (laughs) Um, before you go out the door, one, of course, I want to thank you. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Where can we find you online? What do you have coming up? Tell everybody where we can find you on the interwebs. Yeah, um, I'm I'm on uh, Instagram as Hello Arthur Moon, and uh, we've got a, a website which is just ArthurMoon.com, which has a lot of our tour dates on it. We're also you know on like the Spotify's and the Bandcamp's and the Apple Music's and all that. Um, and what do we have coming up? We're about to go out on the second leg of our tour. We're opening up for this um, wonderful Danish pop singer named Oland. Um, we're playing as a duo, which is absolutely terrifying. So if I could wow. for some support, that would be great. <laughs> um, and we're playing like all the, all the cities on the West Coast. Um, and that starts on the 20th in Seattle. And then we're kind of working our way down. So all the, all the dates are posted online. I imagine you learn more on the road than you do doing anything like kind of locally in the studio or creating a band practice or whatever. I imagine just getting those miles on the road has got to be incredibly fulfilling and educational. It's definitely interesting. I feel like I'm still sort of getting used to it. Um, I've spent a lot of time just like playing in, in the city and playing sort of just like around New York. So it's been really interesting starting to, to get out on the road a little bit more and kind of like see, see how people respond in different cities and, and see yeah. generally what the, what the musicians touring life is like, which is really not glamorous, but a lot of fun no. anyway. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I want to thank you for calling in, but more importantly, I want to thank you for what you do. Anybody who's out yeah. there pushing the boundaries, making people think, changing perspectives, you know, they've got a place in my heart. I tip my hat to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for chatting with me today. All right. Oh, no problem. Thank you.
invitations are on